Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. And um, today I'm with Chris Dimming, a design anthropologist and workplace strategist. So, uh, Chris, thanks for joining. And uh, to jump right into it, you mind maybe telling us a little bit about you know, your career uh, or really your education through anthropology and into your current career and, you know, what what it means to be a workplace strategist? Sure. So um, I'm originally from the Richmond, Virginia area. Um, thanks a lot for your time, Matt. I, uh, I really appreciate it. So I'll just go through uh, where I started and then uh, into anthropology and then what I'm doing right now. So um, I said I'm from the Richmond, Virginia area originally, but I actually ended up going to Durham University in the UK for a master's and then a, uh, a PhD, the PhD being in anthropology. So when I started out, I'd say I was very interested in grassroots um, social relationships and also just grassroots politics due to my having been a community organizer and political organizer before I went to Durham. So after graduation from CNU, when I did a degree in political science for about a year into 2012. I worked for a couple political campaigns and then an environmental organization in the climate action area. Um, That got me very interested in social relationships and how people form ties between each other within the communities, although I didn't really know what that meant at the time. That's just what I was interested in. And so um, when I went to Durham, In the UK, I went for a master's in defense and development and diplomacy, and that was an extension of my political science interest because at that point, I was clued into international international relations and specifically conflict studies. Um, I developed more of an interest in the bottom-up approach to conflict studies. I developed more of an interest in how uh, people within communities uh, engage in reconciliation. And as a result of that master's program, I became interested in anthropology, so I defected from political science as a result of that <laughs> experience. And what got me um, really intrigued was culture, how culture emerges and how culture can be utilized in rhetoric performances to alter networks of interpersonal relationships. And so social networks and rhetoric and performance, these exciting new concepts um, I, I just been encountering them at that time, so about 2012 uh, during my master's, and uh, I did a uh, field study in Kosovo for the master's for my um, 
class there on it was on NGOs and it was on the government in Kosovo and how those interact with the international community and um, the United Nations and um, what got me very intrigued there was looking more into actually how does the community react to international to the international organizations and how on the grassroots level how um, what's actually happening what what's happening there versus the top-down uh, narrative regarding the UN and so with my PhD I decided to go more depth into it so I was looking at public space, how people form relationships within public spaces, how those relationships can be mobilized through rhetoric, and how cultural concepts um, emerge and then are mobilized through rhetoric to um, spark and drive the uh, formation of networks. That was uh, very interesting to me. It, uh, I was there for a year in Kosovo from 2014 to 2015. And so I did a lot of my observations in uh, public spaces like cafes and bars, but I also did observations in streets and in squares. And so I ended up participating and uh, joining a, a few protests as well as observing how people um, meet within cafes. And what I learned was that the coffee was a signifier of relationships, but also an exchange of coffee was a way to spark and maintain relationships with other people. And this whole thing to me was fascinating because it was within the context of the built environment and it was within the context of culture and how's culture emerged within the built environment. And so this sort of process of me getting immersed within a city uh, during the fieldwork and during the writing up period, it led to me being less interested in political mobilization and more interested in sociality and how people form relationships within urban settings. And so um, during my writing up process and after I, um, I got the PhD, I was thinking, okay, so what am I going to do now? And being a former um, activist, I was very clued into impact. I wanted, what I, I wanted what I was going to do to actually have an effect on people's lives. And I realized that academia for all its... Um, for all, for all its greatness, it didn't really have that edge that I wanted to have. It um, didn't really have that urgency that I wanted to have. And I wanted to be in more collaborative environments where instead of just you doing the research and publishing it and, and off it goes, you're actually working with other people to design something and to make something better. So as a result of that process, I took on the Applied Anthropology label. This was in about 2018. Mm -hmm. And I started to explore two different routes. One hand, I was looking at uh, user experience research and design research because I was uh, fascinated by how anthropologists are actually incorporated in the design process in collaborative relationships with designers and how Applied Anthropology is actually like a thing. <laughs> so that was, that was very intriguing to me. And so to this day, I'm still very interested in UX research and in tech. Um, the other route was also in more to do with the built environment. And I started to have a couple of really formative conversations. And um, one person suggested that because I did my research in public space, why don't I look into the built environment? And why don't I think about architecture? And I was like, oh, well, 
well, that's an interesting idea. Because <laughs> uh, the first area of applied anthropology I'd really encountered was user experience research and tech. So now I was thinking about a new area. And uh, she um, got me in touch with a workplace strategist at a commercial real estate company. And um, that just blew my mind. I was just like, so why are these people in commercial real estate interested in, uh, in applied anthropology? And what's, uh, what's workplace strategy anyway? <laughs> um, and so I, uh, I started to dig into it more and I found some formative papers on workplace strategy with workplace strategy being the process for your aligned people and practices and tools with space, which I mean... That sounds very anthropological in a way, because if you're thinking about people in workplaces, you're thinking about the um, offices that fit them, and you're thinking about the context in terms of how are these um, alignments happening, and what kind of tools are people actually using, and what can we do to make that better? And uh, that was, again, that was very fascinating to me. Um, I, at that point, I ended up working with a startup called Javelin, and with a... Uh, prop tech platform within it called Agnio. So I was, um, my sort of physical locations were changing in this way. I was still in the UK when I was looking at applied anthropology, but I ended up moving to Hungary in, uh, in Budapest. So I was working remotely for Javelin, which was a UK-based uh, startup, but um, living in Budapest and collaborating with people in Russia and in the United States and in the in the UK and sometimes in Dubai and various other places. And so I was kind of working remotely uh, from Budapest at a point when kind of before I would say working from home was really a thing that most mm -hmm. people knew. <laughs> and um, that was, a, I mean, I think you're talking about academia, which is a very uh, by literally by the book sort of orthodox interpretation of applied anthropology, or, sorry, of anthropology, where you do ethnography for at least a year, maybe two and you spend about that time or, or more if you're some people writing it up. <laughs> um, and then versus, uh, versus Javelin, where what I was doing was I was leading the foundational research. And so Agnio was a platform that was designed to spark trust between neighbors in urban spaces, uh, residents. And um, so our initial setting was London. And we were looking at other places, but really, so Agnio was kind of a network to spark those relationships, but it was also, we were looking at ways to incentivize those relationships through means like perhaps gamification. And so my role was really to do the, the foundational research on trust, how people form trust, how, um, what interactions go in sparking those relationships, and um, how do people live and how do people interact with each other within their neighborhoods. And so... In a way, I was looking, uh, kind of drawing on those classic anthropological um, explorations of neighborliness and of neighbor neighborhoods, but I was doing it in a startup context. And so I wasn't able to spend like a year doing background research or something. No, this was like, no, you, um, you do some initial reading on it. Okay, good. Yeah, a couple weeks there. Yeah, good. Um, and then you immediately start to design and plan the uh, research. And so at first, what we did was we did some um, street surveys in London, and then we accompanied those with a wave of semi-structured interviews with residents in London on uh, on how they interact with each other and how they live within the neighborhoods. And then we were uh, we did more user experience research things where we're thinking more about. Um, 
the sort of a day in the life of people within the neighborhoods. And we're thinking more about um, how can we actually design something that fits within their, within their lives. And so um, this was, this was exciting to me because the, it was all leading into the process of um, creating a prototype. And um, I mean, I think, a way that I've described this transition is that you're going from, um, I started this, are you going from academia into a um, very flexible and very creative environment where the goal is not to do something to the most rigorous academic standard, but to do something where that actually has the end for designing a, a, a prototype. So all the timelines are sped up and you're thinking about, okay, so how do we um, drive efficiency while not cutting corners and rigor. And I think what um, what that did for me personally was it opened up my eyes um, to the importance of uh, not just impact, but of delivering something in a way that's actually actionable. And then, um, but doing it in a way where you're not sacrificing what anthropology can bring. And then... Um, Meanwhile, while you're doing all of this, you're trying to bring and uh, take ownership of your approach as an anthropologist or your approach at that point also as a user experience researcher, which is to um, not just uh, evaluate design hypotheses, but to actually explore and to make sure that the focus is on the person who you're actually designing for. You're not just um, going off of uh, what people think should happen. And... um, that well, yeah, that was a very formative experience for me on those levels. I ended up um, leaving uh, Javelin and Ogneo in uh, December of uh, 2019, and I returned to the U.S. in January of 2020 at the end of January, which was a, a very, uh, I guess, precipitous time to return. <laughs> so um, I've been here in Virginia since de- since uh, January of uh, of 2020, and. Um, I would say it, it's been an exciting year, I mean, to say the least. At first, what I did was I embarked on an orthodox job search, which was to think, okay, so this is what I can do. I can do qualitative research and mixed re- methods research, so that this is how I can help. <laughs> um, that ended up taking an entirely new direction around the time of the, uh, the pandemic, because um, with workplace uh, strategy and user experience research, all of a sudden you had a bunch of people who can also do that. So the job market became um, absolutely glutted with a lot of really good qualitative researchers. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to think more about my niche and where I could actually fit because, I mean, there are a bunch of really good people in the field, right? Like, um, sure. even though you come from, um, you, you have an academic degree, there are a bunch of people who are just as good as you, if not better. And so you have to really think about your niche and how you can fit in. And um, what I gradually realized was not enough to just say, oh, yeah, you know, I can help you with your, your qualitative research. No, you have to actually take ownership of your approach as an anthropologist and really what you bring and how in collaboration with others you work with, because not just you, I mean, you're taking ownership but you're doing it in a way that you're bringing value to the teams that you work with. And so um, that was a gradual like process for me, at least. Mm-hmm. I um, focused more on workplace strategy because with the pandemic, 
many so-called knowledge workers were ejected from the built environment back into the home. And so you had working from home taking place in a scale that had never actually happened before. And uh, with working from home, you started to see these gradual shifts within the workplace strategy field and within um, corporate real estate and design where um, you're going from this debate, which is kind of like, is the open office good or is the open office bad, to more of a case of what's happening next, because it's kind of redundant to argue about the open office if everyone is working from home, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and gradually this term emerged called hybrid working, and hybrid working is still being defined now. (laughs) Um, No one really knows what it means yet, but we have a very good idea of what it means. And the way this kind of goes into my approach and what I'm doing now. So with hybrid working, you have this arrangement of spaces, of uh, physical spaces, of virtual spaces, of tools. And so the exciting thing for an anthropologist is that this means that you can think about individual companies and how to arrange all of these things to fit the people who are working there. So all of a sudden, I mean, hybrid working itself is a context-oriented term. And that's the exciting point right now. And so I realized that. And I started to plug myself into workplace strategy more than I had been before. So um, I joined an organization called Workplace evolutionaries, which if you're uh, an anthropologist and you're listening to this and you're thinking about workplace strategy, definitely check out Workplace Evolutionaries. It's an, um, a group of workplace strategists, mostly in the US and UK and Europe, but also increasingly spread out across the world, who are looking into new approaches. And right now, what's happening is that people within the uh, commercial real estate and design fields and overall within workplace strategy are starting to revisit some of their assumptions. They're starting to think about how do um, we design the environment to fit the needs of workers? Because if people don't use those spaces once they're able to return, if people don't use them, if they think, okay, so this doesn't add any value, so I can just work from home, then that means that um, the space itself won't be used, and that would mean that it would be subject potentially to being sold off. (laughs) And so um, there's a lot of opportunity there right now for people to explore the future work. And so what I'm doing right now is um, I'm involved with um, a startup called, uh, not a startup, but a software company called Facility Quest, which is exploring how um, its software can uh, address the future of work in COVID-19. So that's what I'm um, helping them with. I'm also involved in some other conversations with some um, larger organizations. And it's um, really like my focus right now is again on um, taking ownership of being what an anthropologist is and not just saying, oh, I can help you with ethnography and quality of research, but showing and explaining what an anthropological approach would be and how that would add value. So that's kind of where I'm at, um, where I'm at the moment. That's why I was excited to talk with you because I just think that um, I've been involved in some workplace strategy conversations, but to actually talk with someone about applied anthropology is an absolute treasure. So thank you for adding me into this conversation. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. So thanks for that great intro. I, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe first kind of going back to Javelin, you know, I think it's maybe worth pointing out that you are you're, you were interested in sort of the neighborliness or you know sort of the built environment, but also it's a platform, so there's the mm. UX play, right? And so, 
How, um, what was the challenges maybe in, you know, sort of navigating the online and offline life? That was, um, there was an interesting debate that um, we had, and um, that was focused on to what extent do we have people interacting offline or online, and um, what kind of role would Javelin or would Agnio play? And so um, a challenge that we had was thinking about the, um, and designing for the interactions that on one hand would have people continue to use the app, but not replace the in-person interaction that we were trying to spark. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, I mean, that was one of, that was one of the big challenges. Um, And one uh, way that we focused on that was, thinking not just about what interactions can do we want to spark, but what things are people already doing and how can we add to those? And so um, that's where we utilized UX research. That's why we utilized qualitative research specifically to observe how people were interacting and to um, learn more about how they perceive those interactions. And so that's where... um, our challenge, I think, was in focusing more on specific things that we could do, but the way that we addressed that was actually through focusing more on the person through using qualitative research. So that, that brings up also an interesting point. Um, you know, sometimes we as business anthropologists, design anthropologists, you know, whatever sort of identity you assume, we oftentimes still are having to sort of sell you know, our services and really kind of push for them in many ways. Um, obviously, there's sort of like a quantitative bias over qualitative. And so when you were hired into that role, were they hiring you to bring those skills or did you have to sell that internally first? I, it was a constant process of selling. I think it goes for, I think that's often how it goes. Um, I was originally hired as an anthropologist, but as more as someone who could lead all the different types of research we were doing from the more quantitative surveys on um, that might be measuring how people interact or more quantitative surveys, more based on market research and perceptions. So I was looking at that and I was working with a data scientist, but we were also doing qualitative research. And so what I was always trying to do was making sure that um, not just at the beginning when we were all kind of on the same page, but throughout the process that... Um, I was always speaking up for anthropology. One thing I always learned was that you have to always keep selling yourself, and not just but not just selling yourself, but selling the value of anthropology and what you bring. Yeah, very true. I find the same. And so, um, you also mentioned in there that you know the pace at which you had to conduct research was very different than academic uh, research, and so that you know that comes up often. It's that's. By no means, uh, you know, most people going into it, I think at this point, realize that. However, yeah. realizing it and still sort of adjusting to that and performing well in that environment are two different things, right? And so how, you know, what did you do to compensate and deliver actionable results as you said that you wanted to? Wow, it was, it, that was a process. So it, it, it involved a bunch of different things. I had to even, I mean, Adjusting to timelines was something that I was comfortable doing because I knew that beforehand. Um, I knew that going into an applied 
environment. The focus is on the project and the focus is on delivering results. So I knew that and I was comfortable with it. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me was adjusting the language that I was using. And um, the language, but then also, I think, the mindset. And so with the language that I was using, I mean, I was coming from traditional UK academia, which is still very theoretical. And I had to check my sentence structure. I had to check the format in which I was delivering information. I had to... Um, make sure it was more visual <laughs> because I was very focused on text, but when you're within a traditional academic environment, that's your existence. And so everyone is comfortable with it. And that's your, what board you refer to, that's your habitus. And so I had to break all of that. And that was, I think my, uh, my struggle. And to an extent, I mean, that's something I still have to do now is check to make sure I'm not going back into old uh, academic mode and that I'm like monitoring myself too. Um, Another thing that I had to do was I had to go from the uh, sort of being the individual researcher who does something and then distributes it to being the researcher who's part of the team. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, being in academia, it's all on you. And I mean, that's good because it forces you to put yourself out there. But on the other hand... Um, it's not that collaborative. And so you have to learn to be able to give and take. And that's also something that I had to do and I had to learn as well. Um, and all these things, they, um, I think they have led to things turning out for the better because um, I find that collaboration is just much more fulfilling now. But it is something that I had to deal with as well. So, I mean, a, a bunch of people go through this transition in different ways. So that's just two things that I had to go through. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned collaborating and you mentioned selling your sort of selling, you know, everything that you're doing in a more visual way than text, <laughs> uh, which is great because I oftentimes, you know, when people reach out for help, you know, transitioning to business anthropology or UX, whatever it may be, I oftentimes speak about, you know, upskilling in terms of like design, basic design skills to sell your ideas visually. And so aside from collaboration and, and that ability to to convey things did uh, visually, is there anything else you did to upskill? You know, any like sort of particular like tech skills or business skills that you went out and tried to acquire to, you know, to be uh, better suited for the environment? Mm, I think another way of upskilling that I've been... Um which isn't that formal, but I think it's very important too, is um, learning through networking. And so um, this has been also part of changing my mentality from being academic Chris to applied Chris. And um, by networking, by reaching out to people on LinkedIn through engaging in um, workplace evolutionaries and also just interacting with people in a very sort of intense environment startup you learn more about what other people need from you and where you can fit in and as part of that you do gain these business skills in terms of selling yourself and how to not just sell yourself but also to engage and form value propositions and um for other products and so i think um for me at least like a major I have been going to webinars and workplace strategy to learn more about how the processes are actually done in the field. But I think just as important for that, though, is 
having one-on-one conversations with people in the field to learn about what they do. And so before you just launch into your spiel, you're learning more about what they did and where they came in and the types of skills that they do and also their perspectives and priorities. And for me, that's as important as an an upskilling tool as uh, design skills, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's all about engaging the perspective of the other person. Yeah, yeah, great. And, you know, that I think is maybe a good jumping off point to talking about like, you know, sort of like the daily life of, you know, an anthropologist in business. And um, one thing that, you know, may not be as clear to everybody who's trying to enter is, is that we're not just constantly doing research, right? We are oftentimes planning research and, and conducting research or analyzing whatever it may be, but we do many other things, you know, stakeholder interviews, kind of like yeah. you're just talking about project management type work, right? There's all kinds of stuff. So what, um, you know, I appreciate that, you know, you're sort of, uh, you know, freelancing or, you know, running like, you know, kind of consulting, but what does your typical day or week, you know, or month or whatever it may be look like? Because it's not all research. Uh, um, This upcoming month is going to be very uh, intense because I'm starting to actually get myself off the ground with freelancing and consulting now. And um, so I can give you a picture of how last month looked, which was absolutely uh, crazy, because traditionally the uh, December is supposed to be a quiet month, right? <laughs> At least that's what I thought December would be a quiet month, but didn't end up being very quiet. Um, I was doing, I was working on a couple proposals, and I was still meeting up with. Um, experts in the field. I was uh, preparing and participating in uh, webinars and conference, not necessarily conferences, but webinars and um, virtual meetings, both within November going into December. And I actually, I started then to also plan the research that would happen in, um, that's going to happen coming up in January and onwards. So it was a very I think what I would do is I would um, sort of switch. And so over the previous week from um, right before Christmas, I was in a combination of networking and stakeholder interviews, as we said, but also um, working on my own uh, publication that I'm sort of creating on anthropology and how it can add to workplace strategy. And on the other hand, I'm then doing proposals. I'm then um, participating in workplace evolutionaries. And just a bunch of, I would say, much of it is business development. Much of it is networking. And then the bulk of it is going to be proposals. So in the coming month, it's going to be more research. But I can tell you a lot of networking is going to be happening, too. And... um, yeah, it's going to be exciting. But I mean, there's, I would say, even extending back into um, back into Javelin, I ended up doing um, interviews with potential, um, with external parties who might partner with, uh, with Javelin. I ended up um, talking to um, advisors, potential advisors, and that was more business development kind of stuff. 
uh, which I mean, I was a researcher, so I got <laughs> shoved into business development. Um, and it's really a lot of stuff that happens. And I think that might just be a nature of the work and being part of a startup is you end up taking on many different hats. <laughs> so that's just um, what I ended up doing. And that's kind of the way that I see this month playing out as well. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing. You know, whether it's a startup or you know, a startup you're working for, you're a consultant, freelancer, whatever it may be. I, you know, one of the things that I, I think is true for probably many of us is that we are again kind of doing a lot of work that is not always research. And I think it's good to call that out because uh, for anybody who's interested in this line of work, you know, it's I think they need to be aware of that. But you mentioned in there, and you kind of mentioned a theme of this earlier, which is. You know, like earlier with Javelin, you were talking about sort of positioning and, you know, in there you were just sort of, I guess the concept comes up to me about like a little bit about business strategy, mm, right? There's, yep. uh, whether that's you sort of, you know, sort of positioning your own business, right? Whether that's you working with your clients. So aside from like research and what do you think your contribution to the projects is? And, and excluding like maybe like project management type stuff, but more like what's the actionables? tangible takeaways i would say that i'm starting to focus more on this as well so i'll talk about where i view my contribution is but then i'll go back to applied anthropology and something that i've been focusing in on is how within workplace environments how can i um not just explore what people are doing now and what they've done and um delve into meeting and what constitutes a meeting and go into company culture and what constitutes that. But what does all this mean for environments going forward? What opportunities are exposed through my research? And um, what sort of uh, avenues can we uh, build upon to improve future environments? What To me, the um, what I'm starting to see my role as is being more of an explorer in the sense that I'm looking into a problem and I'm trying to find um, the ways that the business, whether it's the uh, design team or whether it's um, a tech company, ways that the business can add value. And so the way that I see myself is kind of like I'm going into somewhere, I'm doing reconnaissance, if you will, and I'm trying to find some nuggets to bring back to the people I'm working with to say, okay, so this is all the problem and this is where we can fit in. So that's where I see most of my contributions. And I'm thinking that um, this kind of goes back to anthropology as well. Anthropology often focuses on how culture emerges, right? I mean, in the past, I would say so, um, since the 60s and 70s, we're not just thinking more about the structures, but how do things emerge and how do new forms of social life emerge from the context? And if you're talking about emergence, you're talking about the future. You're not just talking about the present or the past. You're talking about how the future is being created. And um, this means that there is a an opportunity for anthropologists to help people to envision ways ahead, especially in areas of crisis like now, to help them come up with new situations and new solutions, sorry, new solutions to, for um, creating uh, better products, for helping uh, decision makers make better decisions, maybe, or helping them to at least see through the fog. And so that's where I think um, applied anthropology has real value, too. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because, um, you know, there's a very... 
Um, I think maybe one thing that we share is is an interest in is in producing something actionable. And so, you know, I think design anthropology is is uh, very much concerned with that. And so, how do you see design anthropology relating to mm. your to your goals? And and you know, why do you identify as a design anthropologist? <laughs> and you know, what I guess what is design anthropology to you? <laughs> um. I think I'll start off broad and then I'll narrow a bit. So um, my interests are always kind of in different ways. I've always, I've been interested in tech and in uh, virtual platforms, but I'm also interested in the built environment. And to me, a designed approach that incorporates people can be done across all of that. Um, That to me, the central part is the mindset that the anthropologist brings. And so I identify as a design anthropologist because I, can uh, I see using that approach in multiple ways, and I see the value of using it in different types of projects. Um, so that's what a design anthropology mindset means to me. It's a way forward, it's a set of tools, but it's also a, a mindset that's people-centered and that um, specifically acts a bit as a pathfinder for figuring out ways forward for the people you're working with and also for the project. Um, it's a bit like a shepherd in the sense. And um, so that's kind of where I see myself. I, um, I sometimes go by user experience researcher, but I prefer design anthropologist because it's broader and it fits the idea that you're not just designing for the physical environment, but also the virtual environment. And so, you know, you mentioned previous to that, you mentioned emergence and um, how do you, you know, as a, as a design anthropologist, how do you bring in theory into the work that you're doing, you know, say for Javelin, Um, you know, does it, does it show up in your work? Does it show up in the workplace? You know, is it something you talk about? Is it something that informs your insights? I think it's, um, in the case of Javelin, I mean, that was fascinating because I was looking, my background is as a Mediterranean anthropologist, as I did my PhD research in Kosovo. And so uh, Mediterranean anthropology draws on people like Michael Hertzfeld, who were looking at um, how neighbors in places like, um, like Athens or in Hertzfeld's case, in Shepherds in Crete, um, how do they perform in front of other people? What sort of national discourses do their performances draw upon? And what's produced? What emerges from their performances? And so um, I also have an interest in, uh, well, in rhetoric, going back to my PhD research, specifically from um, Michael Carruthers in Durham. And um, again, that's all about immersions. And so rhetoric is, according to Hertz, according to Carruthers, rhetoric is this um, tool, it's sort of this edge of culture, and it's this force that creates social life. And so rhetoric, so culture being this combination of concepts and uh, practices, rhetoric is the force that brings those into existence. So your utterances, the concepts that you use when you speak, um, by doing all that, you ended up creating new forms of discourses and new forms of social life, new forms of culture. And uh, when I was working with Javelin, that, where that played out was me focusing more on the 
performances, if you will, of neighbors within the environment, within um, the interactions they had, but then what did their interactions signify? And then what systems, what structures, relationships were built from that? And then I think if we're talking about workplace and talking about workplace strategy, the I still end up going back to Carruthers. I still end up going back to Hertzfeld and also to Bourdieu because we're thinking about the space. What role does the space have as being a setting for social interactions? What um, type, different types of spaces are there? So what, um, what space within the office is more public? So we're talking about, say, an office and less about working from home for a second. So mm -hmm. if we're talking sure. about a company in an office, there are some locations in this office that might be more public, that might be more, and some that might be more private. Those that might be more public would be perhaps in an open office type of setting where people can see you and you can see them. <laughs> so it's a bit more of a performance, if you will. Of, um, you're, show, you're performing in a certain way, which is acceptable for other people within the space. And then... Um, while you're also doing your work. And then uh, in a more private space, like a meeting room, or maybe in a little uh, booth where you might be able to call someone but not be heard, that is um, that would be seen maybe perhaps as being more of a backstage, if you go back to Goffman, sort of being where sort of you're not seen, and so you're able to put in a whole bunch of work in order to prepare for the performances in public space. And so that's a perspective that I bring is more from spatial anthropology, more from Goffman, and more on the symbols and how they're emerging. And if you're um, looking at working from home, um, you have an interesting dynamic where public and private are shifting, right? <laughs> like, so you're within the home, which at one point would have been more private, um, but where you are is a bit of a public display because the people you work with can see you. And so some people end up tooling around their uh, backgrounds a bit to make sure that their image is one that's acceptable and gives off the impression they want to give. They may also be adapting parts of their, um, their background in their room, if you will, to make come off a good impression. But that's an example of um, the home transforming into a form of public space. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it's very important to keep all of these things in mind because where the person thinks they are has an effect on um, how they work. It also has an effect on uh, their well-being because if you're um, if you believe that you're in an area where you're being observed, then you're going to act in a certain way, and it people may not those interactions towards you may not necessarily be favorable. And so all these things have consequences. And that's where I think having a theoretically informed perspective on space and what space means can be particularly valuable. Um, and I think to segue back into um, anthropology and theory and how that can be applied in applied anthropology, I think there's a stronger argument to make that um, anthropological ethnography is distinguished by being theoretically informed, right? And um, there is a, when you're doing ethnography as an applied anthropologist, yes, I mean, you, you can't go in with this in-depth literature review and because people aren't going to read it, but you should still take that 
perspective when you're doing your work is what you're doing is you're translating that into the value for the project. You're translating that into uh, what it actually means. And I think that if uh, applied anthropologists sort of leave the theory behind, I think that they're losing a lot of what they bring. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. What we do and how we approach it is different than what we have to, to tell everybody necessarily. Right? We don't have exactly. to share all of that, but <laughs> we can use it to inform our work. Exactly. So, you know, you know, I think what you're talking about with sort of the the private space, you know, our our own home spaces here, sort of becoming public, is pretty interesting. And um, you know, how does that relate maybe to something you said earlier? You know, you said these days you had well, you had to learn how to sort of collaborate. And back then, that might have been actually in the workplace, but yeah. learning how to collaborate now online, it, which you know is typically happening via some screen share or some tool, maybe like Miro, where we're kind of in and working together. But there's, there's a lot of interesting things happening in that space. And maybe that relates to some of the work you're doing currently. Um, so, yeah, any thoughts on that, uh, you know, and virtual collaboration? Mm. I um, It was interesting for me because with um, Javelin and Ognia, we were collaborating virtually right from the get-go. <laughs> so I was um, kind of struck, um, I guess, stuck into that almost immediately. And um, this was, I'm pretty sure this was right before Mural. This was around 2018, 2019. And so, um, yeah, I, I uh, got used to having to get used to um, constant Zoom calls. And um, I would say screen shares and all that. I think what's... Um, important to keep in mind and just something that I've been noticing is that the tools haven't really been proliferating over the past two years. I mean, Zoom has changed shape pretty drastically since when I started using it. And uh, I think that, so that there is an opportunity and it's that the technology is there to improve collaboration. Um, that's also the challenge. And so there was a, uh, a study that came out from um, Kate Lister, and she runs Global Workplace Analytics. This was a very big uh, study, and it was focused on remote working and where the opportunities were and where the challenges were. And so this is a kind of a, I mean, things in this field have been evolving pretty quickly. And this was, I would say, published in May. So it's a little bit dated, but I think the insights are still there. And the big finding was that People felt that they were able to do the work they needed to do, but they weren't sure about how they were actually collaborating. And there are doubts within that um, study. There were signs that collaboration itself suffers <laughs> in the context of working from home. Um, and so the opportunity is there for us to create better tools and for us to refine the collaborative process virtually. Um, I think that where a lot of this seems to be faltering and falling through is that we were essentially thrust into working from home and people were using what tools they had. They were improvising, which, which I mean, makes a lot of sense. Um, but I think that a way that you can, that anthropologists can um, make uh, some headway right now would be to help teams figure out what actually what tools actually work for them because I think we have a bunch of t tools out right now. It's just the challenge is that they're not necessarily being used effectively, <laughs> and that uh, maybe the right ones aren't being used at all. 
And I think that's where a lot of the challenge for collaborative working is right now in general. I think that um, looking at it from, a, I would say, an employee perspective of what would actually help them would go a long way. It would go to resolving some of those gaps in terms of collaborative work at home versus in the office. And, you know, in the literature, and, and forgive me, you know, I'm not following like so much the you know, depth of the workplace literature, but is there... You know, from I, well, from my perspective, I would see that um, you know the physical space would be great to get together occasionally to, for collaboration purposes. You know, you know, like in my case, I've been working remote since 2016, and um, for the vast majority of things, you know, I feel perfectly yeah. fine with that. We get together occasionally, really, to work through complex problems, yeah. you know, complex software problems, and that always proves to be beneficial. Yeah, just to get a number of people, key stakeholders in the room where we can sort of be at the whiteboard, whatever it may be, you know, working through things. And so is there discussions of the physical space becoming, you know, maybe just about collaboration? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think there is consensus now emerging that the workplace itself is going to be more of an ecosystem that would include virtual spaces and that would include physical spaces. And within that physical space environment, you also might have a dispersed network. So you might have a central hub that the business would have, or the central hub that its job is to facilitate company culture, or its job is to facilitate collaboration. Then you might have other offices. They may be co-working spaces. They may be smaller sort of facilities, but offices that happen around the edge of the the uh, hub. So, for example, New York, you might have a central hub in New York that people occasionally go to, but then you might have offices in the suburbs where the employees live, they may want to work there instead of going into the office because this whole working from home sort of thing that we're in has really emphasized choice. Um, I think there's a strong argument in general, I think, whether it's a dispersed network or not, is that there's going to be more focus and stress on the physical office as being a place that would foster collaboration. And uh, especially for um, companies where, I mean, innovation is absolutely essential, having that, an office that actually promotes collaboration would be essential. Because, I mean, if you can do most of your work from home and you go to an office that, I mean, it doesn't really help, the meeting rooms aren't arranged in a useful way, the technology is not up to date, then why would you be there? Um, so I think going forward, you're going to see offices that have the tools and arrangements necessary to promote um, exchanges and collaborative interactions between people of different teams, but also maybe between clients and um, the company as well. So I think you're going to see that. And I think you're going to see within that more of a concern for employee well-being and health due to the stresses that we're having right now on um because of the pandemic on um, social distancing, the um, emphasis of maintaining a distance between other people, but also increasing concern with mental health as well because of increase, because um, more literature has come out on I, that shows isolation among remote workers is causing some issues. <laughs> uh, it might be that the amount of remote working we have right now isn't going to be sustainable. And so... Mm-hmm future spaces would need to also promote inclusion and promote um, connection. And 
that's where I think for many businesses, that's where this is going to go. And it kind of goes at the other point would be that if a space doesn't promote it, then because we're working from home and because people can do their work anyway, it may not necessarily be needed anymore. And so I think we're going to see some companies start to make decisions um, based on what they have, whether it's working for them or not. And so I think the real estate industry as a whole is going to be one to watch for um, just for what's being sold. Yeah, great. And um, so that's all really interesting. I, from there, I'd like to maybe pivot and um, maybe just sort of get into some suggestions that sure. you might have for, for others looking to get into this. But one last thing before that, um, you know, do you, I'd like to hear about, you know, say when you were with Javelin or what you're doing now, I appreciate that, like in January, we're going to be doing research. And so this <laughs> might apply more to after that. But what do you do to not necessarily sell anthropology, like to get the job, but to sell the insights that come out of it mm. um, because they too need to be sold. Yeah. Right? Some people hear them, you know, you present them you, however you choose to present them, but then they may not be acted on. So what do you do to sell your findings? Uh, and do you find it to be effective? Like, have you tried a few things? Mm. Is something more effective than others? I would say um, just in general, um, and also based on my experiences with Javelin, I think something that helps is to be more interactive. And um, to me, I mean, I can do presentations, but if it's just you or me speaking for about an hour, it won't necessarily fit in. I mean, I'm also, I'm one of those people that gets more from interactions to discussions than presentations because I'll be like, okay, well, I can just read this. <laughs> um I think that's something that people need to keep in mind is that um, to just present something in, something in text form is not going to work because the business audiences have a very finite amounts of time won't be able to read all of it. Also, even if you come up with a, an engaging visual presentation, um, even if you present it, that may not work either because some vital piece of information can slip through the cracks, probably around, I would say, the 10, 15 minute, 20 minute, 30 minute mark, <laughs> things start mm -hmm. to go, right? <laughs> and so, um, but something I've noticed, which is very helpful, is to have maybe less of a formal presentation and more of a fluid interaction where um, people can jump in and ask questions. And uh, the discussion flows on from there. It's one where um, you're interacting freely with the design team or with the stakeholders. And then um, from there emerges a consensus for moving forward. And I think that, I mean, this kind of is based on a, an experience I had with Workplace Evolutionaries back in December, where another anthropologist and I presented what the value of anthropology could be for workplace strategy. But we did it within a discussion that um, was very freeform. It wasn't just presenting. As if it was just presenting, I knew that I would be seen as being a lecturer or an academic, and that just wouldn't go well. <laughs> so um, I think having, uh, what I'm going to try to do more in the future is having freeform discussions that are ordered, but are sort of designed in such a way where 
stakeholders and people who might be interested can actually engage with you. Because I think what's absolutely essential is when you're going through a project is that you're answering the questions that people actually have, that you're not providing answers to questions that people don't have. (laughs) Um, And so that's kind of where I see it going. I see much I see a lot of value in workshops and in being in interactive discussions where you're providing insights, but where solutions are actually being generated through a group of people rather than it being just you. So that's kind of where I see my engagements moving forward. That's great. And how will you gauge, you know, the outcome of that, both like your own performance, if you will, and you know, the outcome of the project? I think that's where constant engagement is important. And so um, I see potential in anthropologists, of course, being able to jump in and parachute and leave. I mean, that's the way that consultants often operate. But Mm -hmm. I think that it's essential to continue your engagement straight through. And so another thing that um, I do and that, I imagine other people also do is a form of, I guess you call it relationship work. We are constantly checking in with the people on uh, the team you're working with to figure out what it is they need, but also what they think about it and what other questions can you answer. And then from the previous findings and from how you're interpreting, interpreting the data, what can we do to build on it? So I think it's not enough just to do one presentation or one workshop. You have to always keep engaging. Sure. And so you mentioned the, you know, the sort of pitch you're putting together with a colleague. Um, So how would you position or sort of sell anthropology in the business space? You know, like what do you, for any hiring managers, potential clients, whatever, maybe like, you know, what, what is the value that we bring? Maybe, you know, summarized. I like the metaphor of culture being an iceberg. This is not a metaphor that I came up with. This is what my uh, colleague Claire Rowell came up with. So just uh, before I uh, I take before I run with a metaphor, just to just to clarify that. But um, the idea of culture being an iceberg is that is very useful because it clarifies that culture itself is all encompassing, and that it is beneath what you see, but it's a very visual one because people get it. Okay. Yeah. So culture drives everything. It's not something that you actually see it's invisible, but it's really important. And I think that being able to understand and explore that iceberg and figure out where it actually is and what its dimensions are and what it's composed of. I think that that's a very vital strength for my, for well, my own work because I'm thinking about culture within the context of the workplace. But you can also think about it within um, any type of setting. Like if you're thinking about a group of gamers and you're coming up with a game, then you're thinking about gamer culture and you're thinking about um, specifically what kind of culture do the people who play that game have, for example. Um, And you're thinking about what drives it and you're thinking about what sorts of behaviors and concepts that compose that culture, how do they emerge, and then what effect do they have on the way that people play the game? And um, I think that being able to sell the, being able to focus on the iceberg and explore it is a key anthropological strength. And so I've been running with the iceberg metaphor 
ever since, and I found it to be useful and resonant. I do think that it's not enough for anthropologists to be able to focus on what's happening now and to explore the culture of what's happening now. You have to also be able to expose opportunities for making a better product. You need to sell yourself as having insights in the future and be able to, you're not predicting the future, but to be able to imagine new possibilities that can then be built upon uh, by you and the people you're working with. And I think that's a key anthropological strength. And I think that's um, one where we as anthropologists are well-suited because we have the perspective that's already there for thinking about future opportunities and we, we just have to exercise it. Yeah, great. So to use that, I, I like that, and to maybe use that to pivot. So you know, thinking about the future, what would you recommend to, you know, whether it's a student who wants to move into you know, the world of you know, applying anthropology in business or you know, like an early career who maybe, you know, wants to mm. grow their career over time, right? Like, wait, you know, what, what, what recommendations would you give, whether that's skills mm. or just maybe, you know, like knowledge, you know, how to position themselves, how to brand themselves, whatever it may be. Uh, there's a lot there to, <laughs> to go into. Um, so I think I would start with something that I've just learned for myself and then to maybe go into upskilling later, but um, I think that to speak from my own experience as someone who is still to an extent going through this would be maybe more helpful. So something that I've learned recently for myself is the importance of taking ownership and being an anthropologist. Because as I said earlier, it's not enough right now to say that you can help the quality of research. Because a lot of people do quality of research, and a lot of people say they do ethnography. And whether they actually do ethnography or not is kind of beside the point, because you have to justify yourself. Because um, unless you're talking about certain industries, and even in UX research and tech to an extent, you have to show where what you can bring as an anthropologist. And you have to be able to take ownership of who you are as an anthropologist and what you bring as an anthropologist and what um, benefits uh, your approach has for the people you're working with. And you have to be able to do all of this without trying to come in as some kind of savior or as someone who can do all the things. Because, um, again, like there are people who are going to be working with regardless. And even if they have been doing ethnography that they call ethnography or not, they think they can do it. And what you need to do is you need to show through your actions and you to explain clearly what your value is and what you can do. And you, so that involves taking ownership of yourself as an anthropologist. You're not going in there just to say, oh, I can help you with qualitative research. Please hire me. No, you're going to say that you can do the qualitative research in this way. It will have this effect. And you'll go through insights in collaboration with other people on the team. That's something that I've started to do. And I think that um, along with taking ownership, what that means is that you're not just looking, waiting for an opportunity to come. You're also uh, putting yourself out there and you're explaining to other people in certain forums where, like LinkedIn or maybe in podcasts or in publications, wherever, you're clearly showing what you're clearly trying to explain what you can do. Because 
even if you don't really know at first, you will refine that proposition and you will learn more over time. But the important thing is that you're putting yourself out there. And I think um, because, I mean, applied anthropology is still, it, it is a thing, but it's more present in some business spaces than others. And I think that there is an opportunity to bring it into maybe commercial real estate, or if I'm not talking about my own circumstances, maybe HR, uh, maybe in different types of urban planning, maybe, I don't know, um, counseling, maybe more in nonprofits or community organizing than it is already. I think there is a lot of space there. There isn't a lot of opportunity depending on what you're interested in. Um, but Or to get there, you really need to get comfortable with taking ownership of being an anthropologist, not just, you can't... Um, it's not enough to go into applied anthropology because you want to get a job. It's you have to be able to explain what an anthropo applied anthropology is, applied anthropologist is, and you have to be able to articulate where it is clearly what it can do. Um, so that would be one thing. The uh, another thing that I've started to do, well, that I've been doing for a while, is that um, just networking, getting to know professionals in the field that you're trying to enter because i mean if if you suddenly start talking about the value of anthropology in a field that you haven't really been in it's, it's not necessarily going to go well and you need to learn how people within that field speak and you need to learn what's important to them so i mean this is going back to stakeholder interviews in a sense but it's also taking an anthropological approach to learning the perspectives and the sort of the habits and the concepts behind the people you're going to be working with in the future. The way you do that is through reading about the field, but it's also through um, just engaging in conversations. And so those are two important things to keep in mind. Um, I think if there are many, of course, job posts for that mention anthropology, but um, I think if you only focus on them and if you're very job post focused, and I think you're missing a lot of the opportunity and the danger is that you'll be putting a lot of effort into applications that may not come back. And by relying on job applications, you're again, you're focusing more on um, kind of waiting for something to come to you rather than putting yourself forward. Yeah, great tips. All right, Chris. Um, well, I think that was that was really helpful for everybody. I learned, enjoyed learning more about what you're doing, and I would love to check back in in uh, you know in a year or so and kind of hear how everything's evolving in the workplace. Definitely. Post, uh, well, hopefully, post COVID, at that point, <laughs> it will be an interesting time. I'm sure. I'd love to have the conversation then too. I think uh, almost a good summary of before and after, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So, um, you know, to wrap up, anything you want to plug? Anything, you know, any projects that you're working on that are particularly interested? Or, you know, where can people find you? Well, um, the things I'm involved right now are emerging or in the very beginning stage. Um, so I think to learn more, the easiest thing to do would be to follow me on um, on my uh, LinkedIn. So if anyone wants to reach out, they feel free to find me and um i've i'm very i'm always very open to conversations with people in the workplace strategy field but also applied anthropologists of any stripe and students too um my profile would be chris dimming comma phd great well thanks for uh extending that offer to everybody and uh, i should add that's how we connected so definitely <laughs> so. 
Great. All right. Well, Chris, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Matt. I hope you have a great day. And uh, thanks again for reaching out to me. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.